This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Romans 8, verses 18 to 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, and now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. He is risen. (laughs) He is risen indeed. And because he is risen, he is for us. Before we get to the primary verses, which Brent did not read today, I told him not to. Let's consider briefly what Brent has already read to us. At the end of this passage, you might get the sense that Paul is exhausted at the wonder of the majesty of what has just been expressed. As he's just written the most almost incomprehensible truth that God loved us before, listen, before anything came to be, God loved us. Before he created the first molecule that, that became the universe, God loved us. He had chosen us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And from that eternity, He also called us. And from that eternity, He also justified us. And from that eternity, He also glorified us before anything came to be. And I get the sense that Paul looked up after he wrote this and said, what's left to say? Where do I go from here? Then Paul writes with a sense of terrific wonder, two verses that I believe are two of the most powerful and life-changing verses in the Bible. And here they are. Paul said, what then shall we say to these things, what I've just written? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us some things? 
A few things. Most things. A lot of things. Say it with me. How much has He given us? All things. My prayer is these two verses today will enter our minds and our hearts. We renew our minds and our hearts. The rock, the rock of the Word will break the heart to pieces in places where it's grown calloused and hardened. And we will walk out of here with a new understanding of who we are in Christ. Let's look at this passage under three main points. The pertinent question, the perfect gift, and the powerful promise. First, the pertinent question. The pertinent question. If, what shall, then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? J.B. Phillips translated that. In the face of all this, what is there left to say? Right? If God can be, is for us, then what can be against us? Somebody might say, there's so many things against us. I, I got people in my own family that are against me. I got people at work that are against me. I got people in the neighbors. Some of the neighbors are really against me. And look, we got world people in the world who hate us. They hate what we believe, and they are against us, and their sole purpose for living is to destroy us. And we know that all of that's true, don't we? But yet the Bible still says, if God is for us, who can be against us. Paul mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, danger, and sword, all of those in verse 35. He even writes, quoting from Psalm 44, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So what can he possibly mean when he says, who can be against us? Think of this passage here. Think of this as a courtroom scene. All right, Paul is setting up a courtroom scene, and you know in a courtroom, how many of you have been in a courtroom? Don't raise your hands. You've been in a courtroom, I'm sure you've just been on the jury. You've been in a courtroom, and there's a witness stand, right? What does a witness stand for? It's for people to give testimony, witness. Just imagine you're the accused, and you're in the courtroom waiting to be sent to death, sentenced to death, and God walks into that courtroom. And God takes the witness stand. He sits down in the witness stand and he testifies. He says, this one is mine. This one is mine. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. If God did that, if God testified on our behalf, here's the question. Who can stand against us? Right? Who's going to take the witness stand after that and say, well, I know God said that, but... Not happening. When God testifies for us, it's over. Case closed, court dismissed, sentence dropped, thrown out. In fact, it was paid, but not. it will not be paid for by us. And that's why he said in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He is for us, so everything in our lives, listen, saints, everything in our lives, including the hard stuff, the bad stuff, does bad stuff happen to good people? Yeah, but really it's bad stuff happening to bad people because there's only one good person, that's Jesus. So bad stuff happens to bad people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and it becomes sons and daughters. Bad stuff happens. So all those things, our distresses, our trials, our heartbreaking losses are momentary. And they're temporal. And when they're put on the scales against the other side, the eternal weight of God's glory, the eternal joy of God's advocacy for His sons and daughters, the eternal gift of adoption for us as as His sons and daughters, then yeah, there's nothing that can be against us. 
because God is for us. Saints, I'm giving you from this passage, God is giving us a solid place to stand. This is eternal truth. It's solid rock. It's unchangeable. It's undeniable. God is for us. We'll do like in the Pentecostal church. Turn to the neighbor next to you and say, God is for you. Go ahead, do it. God is for you. <laughs> Didn't that feel weird? Though the mountains, though the, though the mountains fall into the sea in your life or mine, God is for us. Though our hearts are broken, our finances are uncertain, our health is failing, our hope is almost gone. God's for us. Now, some people still have trouble believing that God is for us, so that's why we need to look at the proof of the perfect gift. Verse 32a, He who did not spare, there it is, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for His all. Who is the, who is the He in this verse? Everybody say it. God. What did He not do? God did not spare His own Son, what did he do? He gave him up for us all. God sent Jesus to the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's the most amazing spectacle the world has ever seen. The cross was where the immortal dies, as Charles Wesley wrote in that great hymn, And Can It Be? Uh, in his hymn, when I survey, Isaac Watts wrote that the crosses where sorrow and love flow mingled down. The writer of Hebrews wrote that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. John Stott wrote, What dominated his mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. The cross of Jesus Christ changed the world, and it changes people's lives. There's a book called The Cross of Christ by F.J. Hugel. And he wrote about the days of rebellion in China in the 1900s. It's called the Boxer Rebellion, which is kind of confusing. But these were people, a cult of people who came together. And their sole purpose in 1900, these boxers, was to eradicate and to eliminate and to drive out all Westerners, especially Western missionaries. Look it up, the Boxer Rebellion. So one day, this group captured a mission school. There are kids in this school. Think the, think the school in Nashville, except there are many more in this school. And they blocked the gates, all the gates but one. They placed a cross on the ground at the gate. And they sent in word to the children in there, anyone who tramples on that cross as they walk through that gate gets to live. But if not, you would be killed. The eighth... The, girl, the, the first seven children trampled on the cross and were allowed to go free. The eighth, a girl, knelt before the cross and she was shot. All the rest in a line of a hundred students followed her example. Jesus' death on the cross changed the world. Remember when Jesus appeared to his disciples? This is in Luke chapter 24 and there were some who doubted, some didn't believe, especially Thomas and he, he appeared to his disciples, and they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost, right? He's a spirit. He's a ghost. And he said, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Why did Jesus show his disciples his hands and his feet, right? Because that's where the wounds of the cross were. I love what 
Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. Somebody sent me this 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 week, and I'd never read it before. And Spurgeon said there are three reasons why Jesus showed his hands and his feet to his disciples. First, to establish his identity. That was the same Jesus they had followed, whom at last they had deserted. Spurgeon goes on to say, Also, he never seems as lovely as when we see him tortured by men for our sakes, bearing our iniquities, carrying our sorrows. Jesus Christ finds such beauty in his wounds that he will not renounce them. He will wear the attire in which he wooed our souls throughout eternity. When we see Jesus for the first time face to face in heaven, as Phyllis did yesterday as she went to be with the Lord, we will see the wounds in his hands and his feet. And he will embrace us with those nail-pierced hands. The second reason was that Jesus wears his wounds when he intercedes. Spurgeon writes, When he rises to pray for his people, he need not speak a word. He may simply lift his hands before his Father's face. He bears his side. He points to his feet. These are the orators with which he pleads with God. His wounds. Third, Spurgeon said, A terrible reason Christ still wears his wounds is that he's coming to judge the world. And every time Christ lifts his hands to heaven, the men that hate or despise him are accused. And when Christ comes a second time to judge the world in righteousness, seated on the great white throne, those hands will be the terror of the universe. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for their sins. But not the people of God. Look with me finally at the powerful promise. Click. The powerful promise. Verse 32b. Listen to Paul's argument. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? In logical terms, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the harder to the easier. He gave up His Son for us. How will God not give us much more that requires much less of Him? Several months ago, a number of us gathered outside on a Saturday morning, some of you remember, to work for about eight hours, and it was backbreaking labor. We were working in the landscaping beds around the church, and at the sign, we were breaking up the hard soil we were digging up the roots. We were loading up the de- debris and dirt and dirt and wheelbarrows and hauling it to the woods for eight hours. It was backbreaking. And I remember watching John Cobb, who's sitting, sitting here in the back. Welcome back, John. Take a pickaxe on a crepe myrtle root. If you've ever tried to bring up a crepe myrtle, you know the roots are huge. And he was taking a pickaxe and he was hitting that root over and over and over until finally... It gave way and he cut through it. What if at the church the next day, one of you had labored next to John, walked up to him and said, John, I'm parched. Man, I'm really thirsty. Could you get me a cup of water from the kitchen? How many think John would drop what he was doing at that moment at church and get you a cup of water? I think we all know that John would do that because he's a servant. But he would also do it because compared to swinging a pickaxe, for an hour to get one root up. I mean, getting a cup of water is nothing compared to you guys who, you young guys who haul those wheelbarrow loads to the woods over and over. How many wheelbarrow loads? I wish we had counted more than a hundred, I would think. 
over and over, it would be nothing for you to get somebody a cup of water. Some of you guys who are riding that two-man auger, beating up the dirt with that two-man auger so that we could plant things the next week. So that's the whole point. It was easy to get the water. It was hard to do the work. You know, I read this this week. Joni Erickson Tata, some of you know that name. She was paralyzed at 17 in a uh, diving accident. It happens so, so often, doesn't it? For 50 years, she's been paralyzed. I love this quote. Don't assume that all I ever dream about is springing out of this wheelchair, jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics. No, I'm looking forward to heaven because of a new heart, a heart free of sin, sorrow, selfishness. That beats having a new body any day. You see, that's an argument from the greater to the lesser. The lesser is that she's going to have a new body. She's not had a good body for more than 50 years. But the greater gift is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Her body will be healed, but also the greater miracle is that her soul has already been healed. And that day she'll finally be made perfect, free from sin forever. And so will you and I, because of what Jesus, because of what God did. What did God do? He did not, he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That was the greatest, the hardest thing ever done in the universe. I think to understand this work, the sacrifice, we have to give it human terms. I know God is, is there's nothing impossible for God, right? But that doesn't mean that not sparing his own son was easy. I believe it was, it was infinitely hard for an infinite God to sacrifice his one and only son. Because of your sin and mine. Because of His wrath. Why did He do it? Because of His wrath against your sin and mine. But not only that, because of His desire to have His wrath against your sin and mine taken away. So that you and I could be saved. So that we could forever be in His presence, happy and holy, without sin. Because there's nothing that you or I could do, ever do, nobody on the planet could ever do to satisfy God's wrath against sin. That's the message of the cross. And that's why people who don't understand hell, why, why is there hell? That seems to be, you know, it seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. The crime is to reject the gift of God, of His one and only Son, His perfect Son who bled and died, was tortured for you and for me to reject that and to say, I don't need that. I'm good enough without that. That's why God said, those who walk the broad way, it will lead to destruction. For that reason, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, the King James version of this, it says he delivered. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. When Judas asked the chief priest, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? It's the same word that's used here. When the Bible says that Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified in John, it's the same word as this word. And we think of Judas and Pilate as the two men who are, who are guilty. They're bad guys because they, they delivered Jesus to the cross. But ultimately, who delivered Jesus to the cross? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God gave him up for us all. I think the agony of the cross for Jesus was only matched by the agony of the father who had to watch his son, his only son, his perfect son, 
suffer and die for our sin, to watch him being spit on and mocked and tortured and beaten, to watch the Roman soldiers driving those nails into his hands and into his feet, to watch his son struggle to breathe and cry out, I'm thirsty, and receive that wine, and then to suffer and to die. He did not spare his own son. He delivered him up for us all. He did the hardest thing the unimaginable thing. Therefore, what do we know to be true? What is God calling us to lean into this morning and stand on and believe with every cell in our bodies? Because God did the hardest thing. He will do the lesser, the easier thing. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Paul asked a question, and he does so perhaps because he knows that this is almost too good and too glorious to be true. But listen, saints, this is, this is too true to be anything but good and glorious. What's the promise? God will give us all things with Christ. What does that mean for you and me? Go back to what Brent read. Since God didn't spare his own son, the sufferings of this present world are not worth to being compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Since God did not spare His own Son, He will work all things together for eternal good in your life and mine. Since God didn't spare His own Son, you and I will be justified. Since God didn't spare His own Son, you and I will be sanctified. Since God did not spare His own Son, you and I will be glorified. And since God did not spare His own Son, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now how much condemnation? No condemnation for you and me. And since God did not spare His own Son, you and I have peace with God through Jesus. God's done the greatest thing. He's removed the sin and judgment that stood against me and you. There's nothing that stands between God and His people now. There is no greater work to be done by God. It's all been done. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, it was and it is finished. God is for us. I asked Caleb, can you do that song, the blessing at the end of the set? Because I I want that message resonating in our hearts when we listen to this word preached because the message today is God is for you. You know, and I think the number of times it took John to break through that root, sometimes that's the number of times that we need to hear it. God needs to take that mallet of his word and break through the hardness of our hearts to believe that God really does love us. That His grace really is for us. That if we've come to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner, please save me, then we are saved and we will be glorified one day and He is for us. And all things in our life are working together for our good. They may be painful at present, but we'll look back in heaven and say, oh, now I understand that was good. That was, that was for, for your, your glory and for my good. He is for us. Do you believe that? God gave up His Son for us. Do you believe that? God will give us with Christ all things. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And Lord, because of that, we have all things with Christ. 
Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, and we're all struggling with different areas of sin in our lives, but some, some of us in this room today are, are struggling with that very belief that you really are for us, that you really do love us. And, and maybe there's, there's, there's things that are, we're holding on to that you're asking us today. You're hitting that, that, that thought, that stronghold in our minds. You're hitting it with the, with the iron mallet of your word to break it up for good and forever. So, Lord, I pray that we would receive this word this morning in our hearts and our souls. There may be somebody here this morning, probably is, who doesn't know you yet. And I pray today that the message of the cross would bring life in their heart, bring, bring resurrection life to them for the first time, that they would see their sin and understand that you sent Jesus to pay for it and no one else can and no, no good works on earth can do it as well. So, Lord, let this be the day of salvation for a, a child or an adult who's not saved yet. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.